Welcome to Illuminated, the podcast that shines a light on the people that shaped a place. I'm Natalie Roberts Day. And that wasn't any save the world campaign on my part. It was just, uh, I felt I was doing what was right. So when I came up with the idea for this podcast, I knew right away that the first place I wanted to focus on was YMCA Camp Kataki, which is a traditional overnight summer camp located in Nebraska. And I think that it would be impossible for me to overstate the significance of this camp in my life. And I know that many people who have had a camp experience will say something to the effect of, it changed my life or it made me who I am today, especially if part of their camp experience was working as a counselor. Um, Camps just have that effect on people. But for me, Kataki has played an unusually more significant role. I started coming here when I was eight and more or less never left. I've worked here for 15 years and I'm currently one of the directors, so Kataki is my big kid, full-time job. I met my best friends here, met my husband here, and our wedding was held at the outdoor chapel here and officiated by my boss. My kid has grown up here. And the love I feel for this place is very difficult to describe. And so I wanted to dive a little deeper into the history of this place that has shaped me and my life in so many ways. Uh, But before we get into all of that, I wanted to bring in my boss and the executive director of the camp, Jason Smith, to give you a little bit better picture of the camp. All right, interview with Jason Smith. Jason, can you tell me a little bit about your job? Yeah, um, I am the executive director of YMCA Camp Kataki, and uh, I guess that just means I, I get to be overseeing everything that happens here at camp. Okay, and obviously I know a little bit about Kataki also being employed here, but can you <laughs> maybe yeah. uh, describe for me what is Camp Kataki? if you had to give me kind of the summary of it? Well, the summary is we are a traditional resident uh, summer camp. Um, we run programs for kids aged 7 to 17 and really focus on what most people think of when they think of summer camp. So we have horseback riding, swimming pool, uh, we have a lake, do canoes and things like that down there. Um, and all sorts of good stuff like that, mainly just getting kids out into nature and having some independent experiences away from their parents. So thousands of people have worked at Kataki since its founding in 1953, and each has done something to shape it into the place that I have come to appreciate so much. But I wanted to start out by speaking with a man who never actually worked at camp, but who has played a momentous role in making Kataki what it is today through his volunteer work, fundraising, and other efforts that we're going to get to in a bit. His name is Harlan Johnson, and at the time he and I sat down to chat, he was 82, but still as active of a volunteer and advocate as ever. We met in the conference room at the Northeast YMCA in Lincoln, which was very fitting because while he never worked at Kataki, he was one of the directors at the Northeast Y back in the 60s when the Y was basically a room on the side of his house. And I asked him to first off tell me about the first time that he came to Kataki. I uh, interviewed for a job with the Lincoln YMCA in uh, uh, 1960. They said, well, we want to take you out to camp even though that was not going to be my responsibility. Uh, Well, I've seen a lot of camps in my day. I don't need to go all the way out to see another one. So on a hot August day, 
they drove me out, and the interstate wasn't in then, so a lot of the back roads, and we came over this hill overlooking Camp Kentucky, land of the high hills, and oh my God, what a beautiful sight. So one of the things that I find so interesting, having worked at camp for a while now and having grown up at Kataki, is that there are all of these elements of camp, you know, routines and traditions and landmarks and just different elements that are built into everything we do that become so deeply ingrained in the experience and you have really no idea, uh, even as us in these director roles, where that came from. And it's sort of a camp thing in general. Uh, I've talked to other camp directors where you know, there are these things that really no one knows why they happen that way, but there's a part of the camp culture. And I think it's so fascinating that people uh, feel such strong connections to camp and to everything about camp and to these routines, but uh, really know so little about them. And so that's one of the things that we're going to be exploring here in a little bit, um, but we're going to go and take a little, a little detour here for a moment. Okay, great. Uh, so Jason, can you explain what that noise we just heard was? Yeah, that's the Camp Kataki Bell. It's on top of our dining hall, and uh, right now it's evening time at camp, and we use the bell to signal the end of a game or the start to a game or things like that. So tonight that was the end of an evening activity that one of the cabin groups was doing, a signal for them to run back out of the woods and get back together for their next thing. Do you know anything about where this bell came from? So my first time at camp was uh, when I was five years old, and the bell was here on a tripod, just not on top of the dining hall like it is now, uh, just kind of beside the dining hall. And I vividly remember being so excited to grab the rope and ring the bell and being not, not sure if I could, um, but we figured it out and we did it anyway, uh, made some noise. But I have no idea of its history before that or, or who brought it to camp or how it got here. When I was a kid, uh, when I was a young kid, I used to walk to school down in Kansas and I had a choice of walking three quarters of a mile to go to school in town or go be about a mile to go to a country school. A lot of my friends went to that country school so it was a little bit of a choice uh, to make a decision of but my folks decided that I would go to town so I went to town school. But as I would walk to school I would hear the bell from the school bell from this country school a mile down the road. And then things changed and country schools were not part of education uh, anymore. And so the country school was tore down. And the guy who lived across the street got the school bell. So I... Uh, ask him if he would be willing to donate that to uh, the camp in Lincoln, Nebraska. And he was willing to do that. So I hauled the school bell 
up there, and we put it on top of this tower at that time. That school bell is now at the top of the dining hall and used all the time. But uh, I heard that bell tolling 75 years ago down in Kansas. So, Jason, now you know how Kataki got the bell that we ring before mealtimes and to signal the end of games and for pretty much everything that is a significant all-camp sort of thing. How do you feel about that? Well, it's, it's amazing. I'd never knew that story before. I've known Harlan for, uh, you know, 15 years and had no idea that that was the connection. And quite frankly, it never even occurred to me to ask where the Kataki bell came from. You know, I just, I assumed it's a bell. You bought it at a store at some point and put it on the dining hall at some point in the history of a camp. I kind of always remember seeing the bell throughout my time, but um, I had no idea that that is uh, the, the legacy or a part of the legacy that, that Harland uh, works towards here. So. Um, it, it, it's really cool. Um, it makes me think a little bit differently about every time I hear that and how uh, intentional it was um, with uh, how that came to camp. Um, you know, every time that bell rings is kind of a, a reminder of that intentionality that somebody went out of their way to make that happen in this really neat way instead of, you know, like I'd previously assumed, just like, oh, we need a bell. Let's go buy a bell. From the bell store or wherever you get bells these days uh, probably amazon um so yeah i know i know exactly what you mean um i think back on the number of times when i was a teen volunteer that i would like tooth and nail like fight to go and ring the bell and it was like this huge big deal and i watched these teens today that everyone is all like oh disaffected millennials and i see them you know like wash dishes and then go and literally like carefully, but shove each other out of the way with excitement about going to ring this bell. And I think about, uh, you know, the, the legacy of that getting here to camp and uh, all of it just gives me chills to think about um, what that must have meant to Harlan to have that be uh, at camp now. And it's just a really cool thing. Yeah, the, uh, I, you, I don't think you could overstate the amount that whenever any kid realizes that the bell is there and the rope is there, how much a kid wants to ring that bell. Um, for whatever reason, I actually just like sitting here right now, we should just start like bell ringing club and just give kids turns to ring the bell because um, they would just do it for hours probably. Uh, there's just something about, uh, I guess, creating noise on that level and uh everything that really connects with kids and and obviously as it that sound travels through the trees um and sends whatever signal it's going to give uh, in that particular moment out um it's really neat to see when that happens uh because it, it's a moment if you stand back you know by the pond or something like that in camp and wait for the bell to ring you see all of camp kind of turn on a dime as like, oh, now this happens and everybody knows what it means and everybody starts heading in the direction they should be going because of the bell ringing and, and, uh, and it's kind of the start and end of all sorts of things. So, yeah, it's really cool. Okay, so I was talking to Harland about um, trying to pinpoint when camp became a 
co-rec camp, you know, when girls mm-hmm. started to come here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out you would think that you and I, being the directors, would know that, but I yeah. have no idea. Um, so I asked him to try and get an idea for that timeline. And uh, here is the story that Sidetrack came about from that. I used to uh, have people donate money to pay for scholarships for kids to go to camp. Okay, these were low-income kids, and we had a bus at the Northeast Y. And so I would, on Sunday, would go to two stops and load up kids to take them to camp. This would have been in the, in the late 60s. There was girls in in those in the, those years. That would be in the late 60s. When I, I'd drive the bus out there, and then I would go back out on Saturday and load up and bring them back to town. <laughs> yeah, you make some dumb mistakes. Uh, Charlie Starkweather, name ring a bell? Mm-hmm. Okay. Charlie had a brother. His brother was one of the kids that we had arranged for a scholarship to go to camp. This brother was uh, very much affected uh, by his buddies and peer group of being the brother of Charlie Starkweather and he wanted to hide from that whole image. (laughs) I went to pick up the kids to take to camp and uh, here was Charlie's brother. Uh, I kept thinking the name would come to me. But anyway, I recognized him as to who he was. And then my lack of wisdom and just, uh, I said, Charlie, how you doing, man? If I had a look that would have killed me, it would have been Charlie's brother. Uh, And I'm thinking Charlie Starkweather, his brother, and I said Charlie instead of saying his name. And uh, so, but I remember there were girls on that bus that day. Okay, so obviously that would be mortifying and that's a horrible thing. (laughs) Um, But also I think that's so fascinating. And for people who uh, maybe are not from Nebraska or not history buffs, Charles Starkweather, very famous serial murderer uh, from Nebraska. Um, I think the murders happened in the 50s. Yeah, well, and you know, as a camp director um, and someone who works with kids, I meet, you know, 2,400 kids a summer. Uh, And some of those kids are, are have been to camp before and, and a lot of them haven't and uh, but it's, it's a lot of kids and I am constantly mortified that I'm gonna call uh, a child by the wrong name just and it's it's something that you know you develop these little ways to go about it and, uh, you know calling people friend and, and double checking the name but I'm just constantly worried I'm gonna let a kid down by <laughs> forgetting a name so I sympathize so much with Harlan uh, uh, in, in that story and can't, uh, can't I guess, can't even believe uh, what I would feel like uh, given the extra circumstances surrounding 
surrounding that story. Yeah, I also, uh, you know, I was aware of the kind of connection between Camp Loosely and the Starkweather family, a very loose connection, obviously. Um, I didn't know that his brother had attended Kitaki, um, but I did know a little bit about Charles Starkweather attending our satellite camp. Can you, I know because you were my counselor at that satellite <laughs> camp, that you know a little bit more about it than I do. So can you recount for me um, what you know about Charles Starkweather and Camp Cutfoot Sioux. Yeah, so uh, Kataki has uh, Camp Cutfoot Sioux. It's a small camp up in uh, northern Minnesota off Lake Winnebagoshish. Uh, we send kids on, um, on trips up there, uh, leadership development trips where they, the kids go up with staff and, and cook their own meals and, and really kind of make the camp experience happen in, in a much um, smaller community um, in kind of a rugged atmosphere. There's there's no running water, uh, there, there's a hand pump and, and things like that. Um, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful location. And uh, I started going up there um, in 1998 um, as a camper myself uh, for the first time. And I, I heard this, this story um, about uh, Charles Starkweather at that time. And uh, the, the gist of the story is Charles Starkweather um, was sent up to Cutfoot Sioux with a group of uh, kids when he was, uh, I think, 13 or 14. Um, and he went up to, to Minnesota. And this is, a, you know, right now with a group of kids, it's like a 12-hour drive from where we're at. Uh, you know, at the time with uh, probably a little bit less infrastructure, uh, I can't, I'm not even sure how long it'd take to get up there, but it, it's a significant trip by car. Um, but they got up to Minnesota and um, the behavior of Charles um, led to him being kicked out of Cutfoot Sioux um, before the, the trip was going to be over and come back. They decided that he needed to not be there. Um, so he was removed from that program, uh, which is pretty significant given the logistics that would be behind making that happen. Um, and so that's kind of a story that's been passed down uh, and kind of the lore of Camp Cutfoot Sioux is, you know, the, that Charles Starkweather is, was, was there and, and was not able to finish the week because of his behavior. Um, and flash forward a, a number of years to um, one of the ranger camps that we had, which at that time was a trip camp up to Cutfoot Sioux to um, fix up the property. Uh, they were uh, cabins up there, had these little side kitchens um, that uh, kind of needed to be torn out because they weren't really being used for cooking. So they had some linoleum on the on the floor and uh, things like that. And they were in there tearing up the flooring uh, to kind of turn it into some more bunk space. And um, in the, the pine cabin up there, they, they tore up the floor and uh, lifted the linoleum and, and found that someone had placed underneath the flooring uh, newspaper articles from Charles Starkweather's rampage, if that would be the right word, uh, when he was um, uh, traveling around the Nebraska countryside and, and murdering people. Um, and put those articles underneath the floor. And uh, to this day, we're not sure how exactly they got there. Um, and I guess I just assume that the uh, someone who was with him at the time uh, on that original trip when he got kicked out of camp um, was up there at Cutfoot Sioux at another point in time later and was putting in those floors and, and thought that this was something that was 
significant and, and important not to um, let be forgotten. And so they, they stuck that under there for kind of a time capsule sort of thing. The camp director, uh, bleeding heart, empathetic person in me just has such like a strong reaction to thinking about, you know, this 13-year-old kid being in that position of struggling. And I can't uh, imagine being the trip leader at that time and then having, you know, a few years later all of this come about. Um, it's really, you know, hard to, hard to wrap your head around. But I did want to highlight a little bit more about my conversation with Harland about Girls at Camp because I didn't just get a rough timeline for when camp became a co-rec and open to girls. I also learned a little bit about how that change came to be. Um, so I'm going to play another clip for you from my interview with Harland. Okay. In uh, 1962, uh, Having assessed the needs here in Northeast Lincoln, uh, uh, one of the things that uh, there needed to be swim lessons. And so I worked with the Red Cross uh, and asked them if they would co-sponsor with me a, a Learn to Swim campaign in Northeast Lincoln. And uh, they uh, they said they would. And so... We had uh, a free learn to swim at Nebraska Wesleyan, and uh, we had uh, put out flyers in all the schools. And uh, I don't know, I I filled every class we had, and and added more classes and the whole thing. But I got called on the carpet by the downtown executive director saying, we understand you've got to learn to swim campaign, yeah? And you've opened this up to girls? Yeah, I've got families that have boys and girls. And they uh, said, well, we don't, we don't do girls program. That's... Uh, our agreement with the YWCA, that's up to them. And they have already made note of the fact that you're doing program for girls. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, you come out to my board meeting and tell two of my dads that are on the board, they have sons and daughters, and uh, you uh, explain to them why you don't think we ought to have a program for his daughter, but we can have one for his son. That was in 62 when we, uh, we being the Northeast YMCA, uh, started to look at the family programming aspect of serving families, boys and girls. And so it would have been shortly after that that we had co-ed camping uh, because I basically broke the ice and... Uh, uh, withstood the wrath of the YWCA about shame on you for doing program for girls. So it would have been the, the early 60s when girls got involved. So, Jason, were it not for Harland, it probably would have eventually come to pass that Kataki would have become a co-rec camp. But let's imagine for a minute that it hadn't, and then you wouldn't have 
me as a wonderful coworker <laughs> in your life. Uh-huh. Um, so we have so many things to thank Harlan for. Um, can I tell you another Harlan story that uh, explains something that we do <laughs> at camp that I had no idea? Uh, I would be happy to hear more Harlan stories. You know how we have cinnamon rolls on closing day of camp every week? Yeah, it's a Saturday morning tradition. It, it's kind of always been a thing since I was a kid. Yeah, do you know, have any idea why that's a thing? Uh, no, not really. Uh, someone told me once that they, they just really liked the idea of, you know, the smell of uh, cinnamon rolls when you walked into the dining hall and that kind of um, tying uh, with, you know, comfort and, and feelings of home and stuff like that. But uh, beyond that, no, I don't have any idea. Jim Carrey would haul loads of lumber uh, out there to build cabins. And one of the guys that would go along to help unload that was a young fellow who was in high school by the name of Bob Carey. Uh, and of course, Bob became our governor, and, and uh, I worked very closely with Bob. He was a junior when I came here, so he was involved with our Y Club, our high Y Club. In fact, he wrote in his book, page 63, that Harlan Johnson was the guy that had the most influence on his life growing up. But Bob, he used to sit and tell stories about working out at camp. And uh, there was a lady, she was the cook. She was a cook at Northeast High School. And then she worked in the summer as a cook out at Camp Kotaki. And her favorite, her forte at Northeast High School was her cinnamon rolls that she would cook. So the kids always came and, and wanted to get her cinnamon rolls. And so she cooked cinnamon rolls out of camp. Well, Bob Carey would would volunteer to work in the kitchen and he was always trying to find where she hid the cinnamon rolls and he never could he never could ever figure out where he tried to watch where she put them and he never could figure out where she hid the the cinnamon rolls which were always the big hit but Bob used to tell that story and When a guy like Bob Carey says that uh, a personality was the greatest influence on his life growing up, why Bob maybe didn't have it condensed in the time that uh, he was growing up, but even after he came back from the, uh, Vietnam and he lost his leg, uh, I had him come over and would swim with him. And uh, I think he probably remembers some of those experiences. Hearing Harlan share his reflections on the role he played in Bob Carey's life was incredibly moving for me. And so I asked Jason to share his feelings on Harlan's contributions to camp and the significance behind them. Can you uh, talk with me a little bit about kind of 
your understanding of Harlan's legacy at camp or what you know about kind of what he has done for camp? I think the thing that jumps out the most is Harlan sticking his neck out again like he did just just then in that story uh, about saying hey maybe we should have girls in these programs um, but this time around it was uh, sticking his neck out and saying uh, hey uh, I've heard that people are thinking about selling Camp Kataki. Um I don't think that should be a thing I had also heard that story about Harlan sticking his neck out for camp, and I asked him about it, um, and so I want to share with you his words on that experience. Yeah, awesome. I've actually never heard him describe it. I've just been kind of told by other people, uh, I guess, kind of a synopsis, but I'd be interested in hearing it. Now, I, I tell this with a little bit of pride and with a, a little bit of of anger. The Lincoln YMCA fell on hard times after a capital funds campaign. We didn't quite make the goal. The contractors had uh, kind of not told us the truth with developing the uh, capital hotel. But the end result was that uh, the general executive uh, playing handball one day uh, had a heart attack, passed away. I served as the interim for about six months and then, and actually went for the job but didn't get it. And a new fellow came in from St. Louis and uh, he told me one day that he had the financial problem all worked out. He was going to sell Camp Kentucky and pay off the debt on the downtown building. And I said, I don't think that's a good idea. And he said, it's all worked out. I've got a couple of board members who are going to uh, develop it into summer homes. And so uh, it's a done deal. And I said, no, I, I will fight you on that. He said, you better not. And uh, I made sure at the next three board meetings that the right people were there to vote against it. Larry Price couldn't be there one day, so he sent his attorney with a letter of proxy to vote against it to sell Camp Kentucky. The third third time that it was brought up and on the agenda and failed, the director called me in the office uh, next Monday morning and asked me to have my desk cleaned out by Friday. So it, uh, yeah, it cost me my job, but we still have Camp Kentucky, and thank God. Uh, so, Jason, hearing that uh, and realizing what Harlan sacrificed for camp, um, I know for me, 
I am so struck by this idea of, you know, where would my life be if it were not, or if it were not for Kataki and were not for this place that has meant so much in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering kind of what your reaction to hearing that story is. Uh, it's, uh, it's inspiring and it's, it's tough to listen to as well. It's troubling to hear that uh, that was a situation camp has been in in the past, um, but also inspiring to hear that there were people who recognized that, Harlan specifically recognized that the potential of the program was worth well, way more than the value of the property. And, you know, I, I think today, listening to this in 2016, it's incredible to hear the story of one man saying, this is what I believe in. And you know, doing so much more than the tweet or the Facebook status, getting people to agree with him, getting the right people in the room and, and making sure that um, the right result happened, uh, even though, and perhaps most impressively so, um, that result ended with what I can only imagine is, is, is a very huge personal sacrifice. You know, camp means a lot to me. Um, it is also my full-time job and you know I can't imagine having to leave that for um, a, you know a reason like Harlan described you know having that taken away and uh, I think some of the other stories that he uh, has told to you and, and that I've had the opportunity to hear about his time at the Y and, and the stuff that he helped uh, make happen uh, shows, you know, how much he was invested in that job and the change and the difference he was making and um, the lives of the the boys and the girls and the families that uh, worked at the uh, that were involved in the Northeast Y at the time. So um, it was definitely not a small sacrifice, and he willingly made it. Just a couple other questions for you. Um, one of them, can you just tell me a little bit, you know, I was, I was going to ask you about when they were planning a Sakataki, so I'm glad that you uh, brought that up. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, why it was so important to you um, to, you know, go to bat for camp at that time? Um, and well, uh, I wasn't the only one that saw the potential of, and the value not just of the geography of the land, but the, uh, the whole program uh, package. You know, there's, there's certain things in life that, uh, that you go to bat for. And uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't have any idea that it was going to cost me my job, but... Uh, yeah, it's it, it's good to look back and think, oh yeah, I had a little bit of part of that. Uh, and you can look at the uh, what's happening, and uh, you you know that well, uh, maybe a little bit of sacrifice. Uh, uh, and now it's all worthwhile. Yeah. yeah, this story needs to be 
needs to be told, uh, and it uh, it adds to the character and the history of the of the camp. It's excuse me itself. It uh, it has been uh, it's been a kind of a silent force that the general public knows about, but uh, it's made its uh, impact on, I don't know if you know my condition, do you know what's happened to me? No. Well, uh, <laughs> I was losing weight. I lost 67 pounds from last January uh, till uh, about November, and we were trying to find out why was I losing weight. Uh, I really didn't have an appetite, but I was eating healthy and that, and that sort of thing. And it wasn't until January they went down my throat and took biopsies of my lungs that they found out that I had a terminal illness uh, called pulmonary fibrosis. And so they, uh, they may give me a, a couple of years uh, at the max to, uh, and uh, the last part of that, particularly the last year, uh, it'll be pretty much bed passed. But uh, uh, I have, uh, my oxygen is my lifetime companion now, and uh, so I have some things that are on my bucket list that I kind of want to do, and uh, hopefully, uh, good Lord will give me a little time to to do most of those. Uh, the thing that. I felt so compelled to do as soon as I heard him tell that story is I just wanted everybody to know um, <laughs> and I uh, you know I went and told a lot of our group of friends who are all camp people and talked to a lot of different people but one of the things that I really wanted to do was uh, share that story with some of the campers at camp this summer and kind of uh, allow them to know a little bit more about the history of this place that you know they love and feel so strongly about even as as young campers um, and so I talked to some of them about uh, what they would want Harlan to know um, after hearing that story about what camp means to them I told you a little bit about uh, Harlan's history with camp, and he can't be here right now because of some health things, but if he were here right now, what would you want him to know about uh, what camp has meant to you, or what would you want to tell him? I would just say thank you because he didn't give up on Kataki, and it is such an amazing place, and I don't know what I would be like without it. I would tell him thank you so much for not letting this amazing camp close down because I love it here and I want to keep coming here and maybe possibly become a counselor because it's, it's, I love it here. I would just really like to thank him because he, uh, he seems like such a nice man and he really cared for the kids and, um, and I think that Harlan 
he did a really good thing because um, now a lot of people come here and a lot of people find us special and I just I, I love I love this camp I love everything about it um, I would probably tell him that it has just been the most amazing place that I've spent 11 years at and I know that when I'm down I can think of Kataki and um, the great people that are there and it can help me get through times that might be hard or it'll help me get through it. He's definitely somebody that I look to and think that, you know, I want to live my life like Harland. I want to know what's important and I want to um, fight for what's important and I want to um, make the world a better place in, in ways like he has. So. As far as what campus meant to me, I that's that's that is immeasurable. Uh, <laughs> it's given me a career. Um, it's given me a, a family, um, both a camp family, but also a, a life family. Uh, and as far as the impact that he's had, and like the things that I would say to him, uh, simply be, thank you, um, thank you for everything you did. I. I never really knew you much uh, as a, uh, in, in life, but um, your impact is surely felt uh, to this day. That last clip was actually from one of our other directors, Neil Sherps Walter, and uh, as it is alluded to in uh, his reflections on what Harlan's sacrifices meant to him, um, Harlan did pass away in the time that we have uh, been working on this podcast. Um, and you and I, Jason, both attended his funeral and were able to celebrate his life and see all of the many incredible things that he uh, has done for the community uh, that we live in. And I know for me, I was just so uh, struck by the amount of sacrifice and work and volunteerism that he has done. You know, there was an article in the paper right before he passed away about his legacy of volunteerism and what he has done with the Red Cross and the Cornhusker State Games. But I know, you know, sitting there in a room full of people that had, had loved him and came to honor his memory uh, was really impactful for me um, and just really highlighted for me how important I think it is to tell this story of what he has done for camp and what um, we owe to him as the kind of keepers of this this place that he has done so much to build in his lifetime. As we've been sitting here uh, today, even um, Barbara Teen, the CEO of the Lincoln Y, uh, slid an envelope under my door with memorials that uh, people have given in Harlan's name to Camp Kataki. And you know, it just happened while we were having this conversation. And so he continues to have an impact on everything that we do at camp and I, I really hope that these stories and the words that he has shared through this medium will um, inspire others and, and will continue that impact and give a wider group of people an opportunity to give him the thanks and the recognition that he deserves. <laughs>